um, a lot of experimentation. Um, like if you're not constantly iterating and learning new things, then it's hard to, you know, evaluate that you're being successful. It's how you measure success. So going back to some of what Rachel was saying, um, we learned a ton by having these conversations, initial conversations to lay the foundation with customers and potential customers. Okay, we got uh, two friendly faces this time. Um, usually we do one-on-ones, but hey, from Penfield AI, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Ravi. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Um, as, we're, as I was explaining before the episode, um, uh, Madeline, Madeline and Rachel, oh, great uh, great to have uh, some female faces on. Right, we've been desperately uh, looking forward to have more representation, um, um, you know, from the startup side, especially from females, especially from, uh, you know, and um, it's 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 been uniquely challenging. It's 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 weird. Like I actually reached out to um, a, a reporter friend of mine and saying, how can we better get representation, um, you know, especially in covering female-led companies, right, and and a female faces behind it. And I'm really enjoying to have, have you guys on, talk about especially something interesting on cybersecurity, right? Penfield AI, you guys are working on cybersecurity threats and problems. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see from your perspective what that means. So thank you for joining us. Thanks. We're excited for this conversation. It's great to hear that you're putting that kind of effort in. Yeah. Um, so let's get started right from the beginning. So Penfield AI, um, you guys help with threat detection with uh, um, a cybersecurity attacks. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting, actually, we're not in the detection space. It's a it's a mistake that's quite common because a lot of times there are tools for detection and then there are tools for remediation, but we're actually sitting in a unique gap in between. So with Penfield, we sit between cybersecurity analysts and their computers and all the tools that they work with to optimize the process between the two. And uh, Penfield's actually the first company that has the ability to model the skill sets of cybersecurity analysts in real time and use that data to perform the actions that the, the engine then performs. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that, that gives a, uh, that's quite a mouthful <laughs> to digest, <laughs> right? Uh, can we talk into what that, what the mechanics that really is? Because, you know, when you think of cybersecurity, you think of those like, you know, hackers with like multi-screens with like the code running back and forth. Um, what kind of tool sets can benefit them? Um, can you go into detail? Yeah, for sure. So um, some of the existing tools that analysts tend to use are SIM, SIM tools, ticketing tools, SOAR tools, and these tools are awesome. Like SOAR tools, uh, we saw a big motion, notion in 2017, which was that AI was going to automate everything and everyone's life was going to be substantially better because everything that's complicated was going to get automated and people can just kind of sit back and manage the machines. Um, and it didn't really turn out to be that way. So our founder, Tassin, uh, he was working in the industry as a cybersecurity consultant when everyone was putting all the automation into play. And to be honest, those SOAR tools do a really great job of automating static processes, which is why they've become so popular. But there was just a gap because in certain industries you can automate a lot of the work but in cybersecurity it's very dynamic the hackers that you're talking about with all of their many mm -hmm. screens they're always changing their approaches because if something on the on on our side gets automated they'll just find a new way around it and so since it's a dynamic problem you need a dynamic solution so that's where uh, the idea of penfield came about cool um so I want to digest that a little further because 
I mean, cybersecurity has become such a like a hallmark moment, like a, like a hallmark uh, state, like uh, industry for us right now, especially with COVID and, and you know a lot of people now working from home, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've yeah. left the the security infrastructure of the commercial plazas of their home uh, of their uh, of the commercial uh, commercial offices, and now they're sitting at home, uh, running on home networks. Uh, we recently had Mick B uh, from uh, YSpace from York University. He's, uh, he's an entrepreneur in residence there, as well as running his own cybersecurity firm. And he was talking about this. You know that there's like so many, uh, so so many methodology for penetra- like for uh, for penetration attacks to occur and and happen. And you know, as like a, a layperson, you don't really know who's out there protecting you. You know. We know the RCMP is out there doing something. We know there's, you know, there, there's probably some governmental agency out there looking for us. But often what we hear is like these white hat hackers, right? People who are just running tests on environments and then tweeting about it, like, hey, by the way, Burger King, your your network's open, right? Uh, I'm not sure if Burger King ever had that, but just as an example, right? Like, you'll be getting a call from Burger King later. <laughs> yeah, but uh, for like for an example standpoint, like we we generally hear things when they go wrong, right? Right. Uh, like it's actually a good thing when things are quiet. So, but like the issue with that is like what's actually happening behind the scenes? It's such a question mark, right? Like how do how do we protect ourselves? Who's protecting ourselves? What's what's this industry look like? Well, they yeah. think. Sorry, go ahead, Madeline. I was just gonna say that I think that's a great point. And people in security operation centers, which is currently the you know the customers that we're targeting, um, they they're inundated with attacks because yeah, only some make it to to the headline news. Um, like Solar Winds is everyone's talking about that, but they're inundated and especially with COVID, like phishing attacks were up like three hundred percent, like. You know, like there's there's the nation state hackers and there's also the nine to five hackers who, like everyone else, they go to work and uh, every day and they're trying to figure out how to how to trick people into sending them money or or whatever it is. And so, and so, what we're, who we target, we're trying to help people be more efficient because, mm-hmm. as as Rachel said, that the landscape is so dynamic. So as as hackers get smarter, we have to be a step ahead. And so that's where we're trying to find extra efficiencies. Um, and our tool is really exciting. We've been able to demonstrate 38% gains in efficiency um, and also improve on the back end some accuracies. We can detect some anomalies and how analysts are resolving threats. Um, and so the quality assurance analysts or the auditors can further explore that, cut through the noise and further explore um, whether that anomalous behavior was was fine, um, or whether you know we should revisit how that attack was remediated, to to ensure that we're you know that organization is staying secure. Great, yeah. Um, can we talk about your personal journeys? How did you guys move into the cybersecurity world? Um, how did you end up here? I I can go first. Um, Madeline has a bit more of a background with uh, with Penfield. Her story is quite exciting, but. For myself, I did my bachelor's, uh, my BA at Queen's University, and after that, I was um, I was working with a number of end customers within in my previous job that were in financial institutions, uh, fintech, and um, I joined Penfield just this past September. Actually, uh, the company was just two people before then, completely bootstrapped for two years, and I joined in September along with a couple others, and. Um, that's really where my story with Penfield got started. It was my first exposure to cybersecurity. And it's the biggest surprise for me was that one, I thought it was just going to be the most ridiculous learning curve. And it is, but at the end of the day, I'm not the one solving the cybersecurity threats. 
um, I'm trying to bring a tool to the, the market that's going to help with that. So it's been more of a, a really pleasant surprise that it's such a welcoming community. Um, I think it's unique from a lot of industries in that in cybersecurity, everyone's working together against an external bad guy. We're not um, fighting against all of the other cybersecurity startups out there because we're not each other's enemy. There's a greater enemy out there. And so it's great to feel like we're a part of a common good that's working to help our society. Yeah. And Madeline, how about you? Yeah, so I'm uh, still in my last year of school at U University of Toronto, uh, getting my combined law MBA degree. And so, you know, I had experiences working in uh, in a startup before I worked at Blue Jay Legal, another Toronto <laughs> a tech company. And I, I really enjoyed the startup environment atmosphere. And so I started learning about privacy and cybersecurity more from a legal side and compliance side and really enjoyed that. And then I got involved through the MBA with the Creative Destruction Lab. Um, and so they're affiliated with Rotman, they're an accelerator. And to see in, in Penfield, it was then called uh, Bibu Labs, and we can go more into that story. Um, you know, it was it was to see in the co-founder and they were super young, we got along really well. So because of that, we just forged this relationship um, I was working sort of as a co-op student or in a really informal basis, but getting to know the business. And, and so I similarly started in September at the same time as Rachel um, in a marketing capacity. And it's just been crazy the past few months. We've seen a lot of growth. And I, I, I would echo what Rachel was saying, which is that I don't have a technical background at all. And so it can seem super daunting, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it's a community that's really oriented around where we're in this together, uh, as cheesy as that sounds and almost silly to say, it does seem to be um, like an anchoring culture, an anchoring theme um, among different cybersecurity companies like enterprise or, or startup. So, so that's, yeah. been, that's been nice and rewarding. Yeah, and that's what I've been hearing about the cybersecurity uh, world, right? Like people are really, really bound together. Um, mm -hmm. like, I think you said our best when you said like, you know, we're all in this together because everyone is kind of like, okay, like, like there are threat actors. We have this barrier that we're all kind of responsible to maintain and everyone's kind of playing their part. Um, and so the, the, that, that ecosystem there is, I think it's very unique. It's very closely knit because it's like, almost like you're in a battle constantly. So mm -hmm. your soldiers in the, in the front line. So like you kind of get bound together. Right. So speaking about, you know, coming from a non-technical background and moving into a, like a high tech company, especially like a cybersecurity firm, right? I mean, there must be some unique challenges. Uh, what are some growing pains you had to go through, especially working with a startup? Uh, for me, it was just understanding how it actually works. <laughs> yeah. I think that artificial intelligence in general is such a, um, a topic that very few people know a lot about. And we're really fortunate to have a founding team and an advisory team that are some of the, the best thinkers in Canada in this space. Um, some of the professors that we're affiliated with are some of the most published um, researchers in artificial intelligence, human computer interaction. And this stuff all went over my head on day one. And it was just a matter of asking a million questions and really trying to understand what it's about. But like we've touched on, everyone's so welcome to sharing and welcome to bringing new people into the community that it was it was just a really enjoyable experience getting brought up to speed and learning something new every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add that um, there's also like a huge humility component um, of just being 
you know, willing to listen, because there was definitely a time at which I thought I understood <laughs> what we what we did at the very early stages when I when I met to see in those CDL uh, Crave Destruction Lab days. And the more, you know, I would attend meetings and phone calls and hear him give pitches and my understanding has evolved and become more nuanced. And so just being willing to sit a bit with that discomfort of like of learning and um, having that growth set mentality of, of reading and, and trying to get all the knowledge you can. Uh, I think that's been been really helpful for me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's talk about like, you know, uh, starting, a, like starting out, like joining a startup, right? Um, I, I think it, it's a very unique perspective of people, uh, like a type of people who start companies, entrepreneurs who are innovators, who are going to be like taking on this challenge, but there's also a very unique subset of people who join these early stage companies, right? Um, um, I had Charles Ratnam from Knowledge Hook uh, explain this to me. It's like, it's like a, it's like a scale, right? Like there's, there's visionaries and there's operators. And everyone kind of fits into a kind of a scale, you know, the visionaries see the vision, they see the mountaintop and they're haunted by it. They want, they want to reach it. <laughs> and the operators kind of build on top of it, you know, and you kind of need both facets into the company, right? For, for you guys to decide such early on in your careers to join a startup, right? Rather than go into more traditional, larger firm to go out and learn. What was the mindset there? Because generally fresh out of university, you want to go into a large firm or you want to learn, right? But you don't necessarily get that step. You don't actually get to learn that much, right? Because you have entry-level jobs. The benefit of startups, you get to wear many hats, you get to jump around, you get to learn rapidly and quickly, but not necessarily uh, be able to feed off of that, you know, the brand potential of a bigger bigger firm, right? So career-wise, career like why join a startup? Was it the problem? Was it the company? Was it a personal choice? It's a big question. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> well, I think it's just a lot of different things uh, mixed into one into one bowl. Um, in part, the opportunity to be really creative and to see problems and to be part of the, the, the part of like informing strategy and coming up with solutions, like that's, that's invigorating for me. I think people that get energy from complicated solutions and being a part of that process and high level conversation, I think those kinds of people are drawn to startups, at least for me. Mm. Um, and I also think maybe this is a cop-out answer partially, but we were really lucky to join at the same time that we were in all these accelerators. And um, we were in, so as I mentioned, we graduated from the Creative Destruction Lab uh, last year. And then this year we were in the uh, a DMZ or Ryerson affiliated um, catalyst called the Roger Cybersecurity Catalyst. Um, and we're still part of the 500 Startup um, Accelerator. And so, and that's a global accelerator. And so at the same time as we were starting, you know, you were saying when you're, when you, instead of joining a large firm, you join a startup, there's no one above you to learn from, but we had a lot of strong mentorship. Uh, so that's been, maybe that softened, softened it yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I can imagine. Learning opportunity for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's exciting to have the opportunity to build something out from scratch and be a part of that growth journey and, you know, you hear stories all the time about that founding team that just IP out and it's like, man, imagine being one of those first people. That's such a cool journey to be a part of. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to echo Madeline's point, we've had this support structure around us that helped us um, validate that the foundation we were lying was actually a good one and was actually going to be scalable, um, which was so beneficial. Yeah. And I think that, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just gonna add that so so the a bit of context to Penfield is that we um, used to be called Bibu Labs, um, and primarily up until the name change, it was a 
uh, uh, in like the research stage, I would say. Um, and so we also joined at the time when the name change was happening, when we were transitioning into this product company, the SaaS company. And so it was also just a really pivotal time in the company when we joined. Um, and a bit of background, because this is just a, I think a fun, interesting story. Um, the reason why we chose the name Penfield is because uh, Wilder Penfield is a doctor, a Canadian neurosurgeon who is famous around the world for mapping out functions of the brain. And we thought there was a really nice analogy into what we were doing as a Canadian company, you know, mapping out the skill sets or the and the functions of analysts. Um, and so while Penfield did it to unlock uh, medical treatments, we're doing it to unlock other types of solutions. Um, and uh, yeah, and so just like putting ourselves in that tradition of doing something innovative um, and, you know, uh, paying tribute to our Canadian roots. Uh, we're based from more Waterloo as uh, Penfield was in Montreal, but um, yeah, that's, that's our origin story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite a list of uh, incubators and accelerators you guys are part of and, and, and gone through. I mean, starting with uh, Creative Section Lab, it's like, that's one of the top tier, probably globally, especially in the country, uh, accelerators, uh, accelerators that no one recognized. So, I mean, that's quite an experience to go through. Your, uh, go through for sure. I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are just jealously watching. And like, I wish I was part of that because it's so hard to get get into, right? It's such a challenge to get into. So, kudos for uh, for Penfield for uh, for for getting to that program. But um, talking more on that about mentorship and growth, right? Um, right. So, working with a startup. No, just like what you said, like you get to grow really quickly. You know, you get to wear multiple hats, and um, like Rachel said, like like that journey of you know going from like a lower like you know starting level to IPO, seeing a company raise, like what goes into that. I think that's such a unique perspective, right? Like that's a, that's the only very few people get to see that kind of level of growth, right? But um, going back to like you know COVID and the situation right now, you were talking earlier about. You know, everything's virtual, you're running everything virtual, right? Even your programming sessions are virtual, your team meetings are virtual, uh, how you two have even physically have not met yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how about the, have those challenges, uh, have those brought in uh, extra additional challenges or has that smoothed things over uh, being able to work in your own time and your own pace? I don't know, just because we don't have anything to compare it to. <laughs> yeah. It's just a reality um, before COVID, it was just the the two co-founders and the rest of the team joined during COVID. So I think that because we don't really know an alternative way to working together, it's been very efficient. Um, it's great to be able to get everyone together, even if we're not in the same city, um, even if we're not in the same time zone. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I think that from a sales perspective, it's been interesting not being able to meet face-to-face -face with prospective customers and, and share that journey. It's a whole different level of trying to build connections, but um, it's it's been pretty good. I think a lot of people have just adapted and accepted that this is business and everyone is trying to drive their businesses forward. And I don't think, at least from my experience, nobody's really let it get in the way. Yeah. And I guess it's also what's nice is you can have back-to-back -back meetings. <laughs> you don't have to have that travel time. So yeah. you can you can fit in more calls. You can fit in more meetings. Um, like we benefited a lot from, well, so the 500 Startup Accelerator is global. And a lot of the people are in, are in Asia or in other parts of North America. And so we've been able to have mentorship calls with them, even though they're in different time zones and around the world. But mm -hmm. 
so so that's been in, in terms of ment your mentorship question like that's been that that's been really nice but I mean I guess I'm being honest I do miss that human side like it is <laughs> I think I think when we do uh we are able to go back into an office it will be super nice and maybe there's some synergies we don't even know we're missing but you know up until this point we have been managing everyone is taking technical issues in stride and <laughs> everything's just you know <laughs> I guess yeah, okay it would be when nice. kids hop into meetings yeah oh my goodness yeah it would be nice I guess to turn and ask the engineering team a question about the product or ask yeah. you know someone else a, a detail like I can just turn to Madeline and ask a question and now it's kind of like are you free for a quick call but mm. everyone's so accommodating and and everyone works really well together um a lot of times Madeline and I just go to the engineering meetings to try to absorb as much information as possible and try to soak it all up. But to your point, Madeline, actually, if it wasn't COVID, the 500 startups one like to scene would have to be in San Francisco for it. Yeah. But um, which would have been a really cool experience. And I think the the connections that you'd be able to meet through that would be incredible. But since it's been virtual, um, we've been able to get so much done in the meantime because we're all able to still be here in Toronto in this time zone, focusing on, um, you know, scaling the company. Yeah, uh, like I think uh, that you brought up a great point, but like um, turning around and ask an engineering problem or talk to marketing, right? Like working in like a small nimble team is that you're small and nimble, but also you have to feed off each other, right? Like one of the quintessential like a conflicts of being a startup is like, you know, you live and work together, you know, like, uh, especially with California style, like, uh, you know, like you rent out a house, you co your co-workers and your co-living, <laughs> right, incubator spaces, it's always been like, been like the high point of like entrepreneurship, right, like being able to experience that. But at the same time, like I, ex I, I went through this in my first company, but at the same time, like when you work and live with the people that, you know, you're going to start up with, you tend to start hating, hating them because you get to learn, <laughs> learn too much about them, right? So there's been pros and cons to that. But like, like with what you said, like, you know, like what do you do when you just can't turn around and be like, ask an engineering question? Like, like I think that's, that's what, that was one of the problems in like getting to a work from home environment, right? Like before COVID, only 4% of our workforce work from home. Now it's 40%. And the main reason uh, that, you know, th th that 4% was growing very, very slowly was that everyone thought that if you were from home, like you wouldn't just have those like, you know, water cooler moments where you just walk by each other, say what up, and then an idea blooms or like you learn about something or like, you know, the, the, the different departments and different uh, responsibilities are kind of like co-lurging co in like a more natural setting, right? Mm -hmm. But then again, now companies are discovering hold on like we're scheduling this and we're meeting up we're actually have more free time but like we're now purposefully doing that you know trying to figure out what are you working on what am i working on we're like more we're more more in tune to sharing but again that natural kind of like bump into bump into each other at the water cooler moment is gone yeah right? yeah i do miss those moments i think it's there's also something to be said for um diversity and diversity experiences like some people in our team have children and are involved in some of the childcare responsibilities mm. and so it's easier in that they can be around and just you know like duck out for for a meeting like I think I think it's enabled our team to be really flexible um but yeah like I think we've also had to really encourage a culture of of using video <laughs> to add that human side I know some firms are just doing or some companies are just doing um just doing phone calls but because we're new and we're meeting each other virtually, um, like that's been nice. Like me and Rachel are so close now and we'll just chat and <laughs> we'll just get on the phone or or, uh, or Zoom just to talk about whatever. But 
um, I think that's that's unique and something we've like purposely had to put energy into cultivating because mm -hmm. you're right, like it, it is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, switching back into cybersecurity and, and the landscape, yeah. right? Like the solar wind hack that just recently happened. Really, uh, I think that was a, a, a huge mo moment uh, in the industry, and uh, because it made it more mainstream. Like generally, small hacks happen, private hacks happen in companies. You know, Equifax got their entire database scraped, and that was horrifying. But like, no one really saw the ramifications of it, right? But with like these kind of hacks that are kind of happen, and these 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 kind of cybersecurity uh, faults. Right, like each time we kind of, like the public kind of wakens up and realizes, oh my God, like what's happening? What's our, where's our data? Like, you know, like these big institutions might not necessarily be safe, right? And now everyone's starting to ask these questions. How can everything collaboratively be uh, taken care of, right? Like especially as, as an individual or a small business owner, right? Um, where you're, you're, you don't have a sophistication of having like a CTO who knows this stuff or a cybersecurity professional or a team or organization working behind you, right? Like, it's like you're in this, in this dark gray zone of like, I'm just operating. I don't really know if I'm safe, but like, I'm hoping I just fly under the radar. Um, what have you guys learned or experienced or like might be good principles for people to practice or, or be just be just, just to be like, uh, aware of. Man, big question. <laughs> um, well, I think the first thing that I, this is a slightly off topic, but the first thing that I realized with the solar winds attack was um, the whole, it seemed like the whole community kind of rallied behind them and acknowledged that like it, it happened, but it could have happened to any of us. And mm -hmm. instead of it being, let's bash solar winds, um, they're the worst. It was, you know what, if this happened to them, a leader in the industry, like we should all up our game because we really need to look out for each other. So that was a realization that I had and that I know a lot of people recognized and appreciated as well. Um, from a more personal side, uh, we spoke with um, a detective with the Toronto Police last quarter. And a big part of his job is educating employees on internal best practices to ensure that they aren't a weak point because a lot of hackers will send any random employee an email and all it takes is to click a link and the whole company is at risk and um like i think that's training that a lot of people don't think about or don't really take so seriously i know i probably never thought twice about it before joining this company and now i'm terrified of my every move but i think <laughs> there's so much for every single person to learn and to continue learning about yeah, and also yeah. um i'm like a personal passion of mine is is privacy um and privacy and cybersecurity are complements. And so I think that like people are watching, um, not the social network, what's called the social dilemma. The social that's dilemma, yeah. Netflix and, and like there's, there's sort of a, a rise in consciousness about privacy issues as well. Um, especially all those uh, anti-competition or anti-trust suits in the States as well. Um, and so just to, just to be aware that there are linkages between the two, um, because I think privacy has become this sexy topic in cybersecurity, despite solar winds and Equifax and all these other those issues. I think privacy is more um, at the fore, but they're really linked. They're so intimately linked. Um, you know, looking back at um, this is maybe a topic, but relates to Toronto and innovation. When the Sidewalk Labs um, mm. uh, project was was being talked about in Toronto, there was a lot of talk about well, what's going to happen with our data and how is it going to be protected and there were conversations maybe uh, we'll develop uh, this thing called the data trust and what does it actually look like. And that aside, um, it was great that there were conversations about like trying to add rigor to that. 
but what about um, what about the cybersecurity side? Like I, I read the entire report and there was very little, like it was like a 300 page report and there was very little, um, if anything, on cybersecurity, at least in any like sort of uh, rigorous way. And so just being aware of that. Um, and then in terms of best practices, I mean, I still have friends who have the same password for all of their different domains. Um, and so even though that sounds basic, I mean, I would just urge people to just really not do that. <laughs> you know, like credential stuffing. If they find your web, your password on a different site, um, that's easier to hack into. Then that you know opens the floodgates for for and you know find if you have any sort of account online that has any sensitive information, then that would be at risk. Yeah, um, like from from your research and from your knowledge, like what like is there any major moves happening within the industry to you know to like have like a i guess an upgrade for not just a system like as an industry on 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 maybe not best practices from a human level but from a systems level like how how do we move forward to a, into into a world where we're no longer worried about this right like now now in modern day societies we're no longer worried that the next village over is going to invade us right war <laughs> has become like you know is it, it, it has become almost like a faraway concept Right, we become safer as society, and I guess the internet, internet, and the online world is going through this like alpha stage of growth, right? Like the Wild West, where everything's kind of like turmoil, but we're going past that. We're evolving past that, right? Is there any major shifts happening to like better protect us as a as a nation, as a society? Well, I think that um, I think if you think about how quickly the internet has changed, it's tremendous. And so I think even though it seemed like we've had internet for so long, I think the reason why there's still so many kinks and, and companies for so long underdeveloped in cybersecurity is because there wasn't this, the notion wasn't solidified yet um, company-wide that these things mattered. Um, it was like the, um, you know, like IT used to be like, you know, in the basements, if you ever watched that IT show mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> with Chris O'Dowd and, that, you know, it's, it's a spoof on that, but that they were relegated to to the basement. No one really cared about them. And so I think that, that we're seeing that shift 100% and that mentality of a, a breach mentality, which means acknowledging that we will have some breaches. So how do we mitigate? How do we have any resilience plans in place coming up with playbooks? So I think there's been a, like a lot of really fantastic shifts and that's been percolating um, all throughout all different industries that have technical um, assets. And, you know, I think part of it is, is like what we as consumers can do too. And we can be more uh, did, did, uh, privacy literate or technical, technically literate. Um, you know, the different, this is when people talk about like um, hacks into ring or, um, you know, those like smart home devices. So oftentimes those are just because people had poor passwords as opposed mm -hmm. to someone penetrating a system and in a sophisticated way, which goes back to my earlier point about passwords. But, but just to say that there are the big threats that people, you know, like the, that like the really sophisticated cybersecurity experts are working on, but there's also the smaller things that, that we can, we can mm. mitigate. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think what you said right, right there is like, it's so important, right? Like, m like most, like, especially individual cases, even largest cases, Penetrations happen because of passwords, right? Like user <laughs> credentials. People, you know, uh, people pretend to be uh, pretend to be BU, and uh, the human element is the most dangerous part, right? And what blows my mind is that uh, how little training people get on not even just best practices, but how things work, 
right? Uh, I think there's a big movement now in education, especially with with COVID and education changing and 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 being, and being a catalyst towards it, is how do we modernize our our training, right, for for the future generations? And part of that is like you know finally bringing financial knowledge into the into into the decisions <laughs> so people know what a mortgage is. But I think part of that is going to be learning what learning code or you know learning machine language, how machines communicate and work, how to interface better with them, right? So from like a younger age, you know, train that upwards and bring it up for uh, 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 bring it there. Um, do you guys have any personal thoughts about like how is it, like you know what are things that you wish you would knew growing up that you are like why wasn't I thought of it earlier? Yeah, all of that. I see. Um, there's some curriculums now that include coding, and I think that's the coolest thing. Imagine having that kind of access. Like we would learn, um, you know, printing and cursive writing, but now there's a third language involved there where you're also learning coding. I think that's super cool. Um, in cybersecurity specifically, uh, it's very well known there's a massive, massive talent shortage worldwide. Um, it's not unique to Canada. It's not unique to Toronto, but it's a huge issue. And it's a really big problem because, as Madeline touched on earlier, there's more threats than ever. Um, there's more hackers than ever, there's more problems than ever. And we, as we've mentioned, we rely on the people to solve that problem. But if you don't have people in the seats, how can you protect yourself? How can we protect the country, um, mm -hmm. the individuals? And so I know um, the DMZ actually in Ryerson, they have a, a brand new cybersecurity training program where they're encouraging people, whether it's students or professionals or people returning to the workforce to come through and get uh, actual training. And, you know, you don't have to have that computer science background. And that's something that I found really cool because I don't come from a technical background. Madeline didn't. And it's nice to see that there are other avenues to get into a technical world because it's where the future is heading. Um, the world's getting more and more technical. And I think if there's ways for people to get in there that aren't just a computer science bachelor's degree, then I think that that's really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Also, I would just add two things. One is that understanding basic code, um, it's just probably useful to, even if you don't become someone who's professionally very technical, even for translating conversations and realizing it can inform your marketing strategy or your 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 sales strategy and understanding the basic mechanics of it um, and having those more slightly more technical conversations. Um, but also something that um, I, uh, earlier this year, I interviewed um, the heads of security at a few different Canadian startups um, and, the heads of security at Shopify and WellSimple, what both of them had mentioned separately was that you don't even need like a BSc or like a computer science degree to become a cybersecurity analyst. And they were saying it like quite motivationally, which is that um, if you're passionate about cybersecurity, then you can do one of those programs like what Rachel had mentioned um, and become competent in that. And mm -hmm. like, you know, passion is like one of the only prerequisites and then you can learn and, and engage in that. And so I also just say that um, you know, yeah, the job market's tough and if people are interested in it, it's like a really good opportunity to have a career with a lot of promise and potential and do meaningful work. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Like, you know, like that training doesn't necessarily have to come from like of, of a textbook or, or a curriculum yeah. or a program. It can be self-taught and learn. Um, one of, uh, one of my, one of the interesting stories is, um, you know, we work very closely with like uh, new vote the elections technology. You imagine election technology would have to be super secure, and right. the founder of that, um, he has no he has no professional training. He's a journalist, right? He went to school for journalism, but as growing up, his father was a, a cybersecurity guy. Like he was CTO of Enbridge Gas, you know, like a, a, wow. a, a you know a top a top a top guy there, and his dad would like 
purposely giving machines that are broken. It's like, oh, if you want to play with this, fix this. But then also like put in like security codes to like block off games or like block off different parts of the computer. And he would have to hack, you know, wow. this is hack his dad's code in order to get access to games <laughs> or get access to the, to the internet. And every time he did his dad would put on a different layer of security and like, you know, and that was his, his like angst against uh, fighting against uh, his, his dad was like driving force to get him to learn cybersecurity, like how to, how to, how to, how to, how to how penetration works. And he laughs about it now, you know, he works very closely. His dad's an advisor in the company and he laughs about it. Like that was a training that led to this, right? Cause, <laughs> uh, right. That's but, hilarious. Like, but like not everyone gets that kind of exposure therapy. Right. Um, what what did you guys do to learn better? Um, have you guys got into into, into learning code? Um, how how's your learning curve been? Like, where do you, where's your sources? So I I'll I'll go first. I guess I've joined as many engineering meetings as possible, as many product meetings as possible, asking all the questions and even just saying like, let me just sit in the background. Don't worry if I understand it. I'll I'll internalize it. But also subscribing to certain email lists. Um, I, I started a Twitter that just follows cybersecurity professionals to understand what people are interested in, where uh, where those professionals are learning. Um, and then for, for myself being in a partnerships and sales role, it's talking to the talking to our network, talking to potential customers, getting feedback from cybersecurity analysts of what problems they're facing, um, what they see in the industry, how they feel whether or not they were ever to buy our product, how they feel it could actually impact their role or not. And just having that uh, open dialogue and collecting that feedback has taught me so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah even though I, oh, sorry, sorry, go for it. Yeah, I was about to say, it's, it's kind of exposure therapy, right? When you surround yourself with people in, in, in the field, you kind of sub, like, you know, sub, uh, subliminally like, just absorb kind of some of their knowledge. Exactly. It's great. Yeah. Surround yourself with people smarter than you are. That's the mission. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying something. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I had a similar approach to Rachel. At one point, I did attempt um, a course era <laughs> coding course, and it, it didn't go too well. So, um, <laughs> so I just relied on learning by osmosis. But um, yeah, like, I think even though I was saying how amazing it would be to have that coding um, introduced into schools, I still feel like being in marketing or being in sales of a company like Penfield, you it's okay to not have that super technical um, mm -hmm. competency. It's like, just goes back to what we were saying of like being open to learning and having that growth mindset and, and being a, a keen learner, I think is probably more important, especially if you're, you know, committed and, and a quick learner, then that's, then that's fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's about competency too, right? Like what you're good at, like focus on what you're good at and yeah. surround yourself with people who are, you know, uh, complementary to you that complementary yeah. to your skills. And that's kind of like what a startup is. You have a team mentality, you know, each person has a specialty that they, they, that they can bring to the team environment and together you kind of fill in the blanks. Right. But, um, I, more on that, like I took it as a personal challenge to learn code my team as well. Right. For the last two years, it's been, it's been, you know, to say it bluntly, the shit show, right? Because <laughs> you'd go, I would go into this course and be like, I don't know this, so then I had to go to a different course to learn that aspect, oh come back, and then that'll spiral into something else, right? And it's the funniest thing when you're trying to learn something new. It's like the unknown unknowns, like what you don't know, you don't know, and it's yeah. just, and it's like a rabbit hole, right? You just kind of keep, it keeps kind of spiraling downwards. But I think it's a good spiral because, like, end of the day, like it just opens you up to like a new realm of knowledge, mm -hmm. right? So it's always good to challenge yourself. 
So going back to your respective roles of marketing and sales, right? How do you market and sell, you know, cybersecurity, a technology company, a AI company, right? Uh, what, what goes behind the scenes there? Well, I, I guess we're still quite early stage. So um, we are just trying to socialize with as many people in the industry as possible, collect the feedback, and then continue to refine our product accordingly. Um, mm -hmm. At the end of the day, one of our big differentiators is that we're addressing the human element. So like we mentioned at the start, we're not in the detection space. We're not a tool specific for remediation, but we're actually looking at the human side of things. And so we try to take you know, a human approach in all of this. Uh, we, we want to understand how people would feel about this product, how they would feel about certain features um, and, and incorporate that into, into the product because we're not, I don't know, there's a lot of tools out there with automation where people are scared they're going to lose their jobs. And especially in a year like this past year has been where a lot of people unfortunately did lose their jobs. Businesses don't want to lay any more people off. That's not the intent. So um, our whole mission is to improve people's capabilities and ensure they're even better at their jobs, more critical to their companies. And uh, we, we've been really taking that approach on the sales side, at least. And it's been, we've been getting some great feedback. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, on the marketing side, I know you're, you're, you're mentioning it's like, you know, like we, we, let, we let the engineers be the engineers. We're going to focus on uh, focus on what we're good at. But marketing especially has become so programmatic almost, right? It's yeah. almost almost like uh, it's almost like you got almost like an uh, algorithms you're deploying and you're working with. Right. Uh, can you speak more about uh, the marketing element? Uh, what, what goes on in your head? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think you know, marketing has taken a very data-driven approach, um, a lot of experimentation. Um, like if you're not constantly iterating and learning new things, then it's hard to, you know, evaluate that you're being successful. It's how you measure success. So going back to some of what Rachel was saying, um, we learned a ton by having these conversations, initial conversations to lay the foundation with customers and potential customers to hear what resonates, what their fears are, what their, like, what the gaps are. Um, and that was helpful just initially, because as we said, we're young. So I'm finding really strong product market fit. Um, and then we've had like really fun branding exercises to, you know, like um, once now that we've aggregated those insights, what's our tone? What's our vision? What are we aiming to accomplish? And um, I think we've set ourselves apart from other cybersecurity companies, a lot of which are very fear mongering based. Um, and as we talked about, there are things to be fearful of for sure. Um, but as Rachel noted, we're like a human first company, like we're using AI to help humans, which is, uh, you know, pretty novel. Sometimes people hear AI and like, oh no, that means job loss. Um, that's mm -hmm. not what we're about. And so um, that we've like been trying to translate that into our marketing strategy and how we come across and how we, how we do our messaging. But, but back to your question about how are you market driven um, just comes down to like AB testing and tracking, um, you know, traffic to our site and, and you know generating content um so we're also lucky that our our founders are like very well regarded in the industry and so then you know they also speak at conferences and things like that that help make my job easier so mm -hmm. so that that that's that's it essentially and because we've had um such a strong network now is really the time where marketing is is picking up and becoming even more crucial as we as we scale and so and um, there'll be even more insights to leverage. But you're absolutely right that it's becoming a very data-driven game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that blew my mind is like how much um, technology and tools 
are available right to, to to this industry marketing and sales so i come from a heavy uh, heavy sales background myself right um and like you know i came from a very traditional uh, element like i did uh, i worked a lot of engineering uh, sorry not engineering um energy uh, in the energy industry right energy industry is still pen and paper it's so bad it's so backward mm-hmm. so my level of tech any tech i brought in was just so revolutionary um but one of the things is uh, with bluemex as we started working as i started working with startups again um, starting two years ago, you know, we wanted to help solve this problem that startups had, which is sales, right? Like mo- all, all startups, you know, it's it's a it's, it's a race for revenue, right? If you're not revenue positive, if you don't, if you can't get revenue and move and move your product to show market fit, you're not going to get additional funding. You're not going to be able to get out of that hump of uh, of being in like in the in the, uh, the the land of death, right? Where like you're just bleeding money. So revenue revenue is a key for any company. And the people who are doing the sales, doing the marketing is like the headline of that. It's one thing to make a product. It's another thing to sell it and, and, and get proof of market fit, right? And yeah. move forward. So we were trying to do is like, and we kind of are, is like we kind of have a co-creation agency, we call it, where we help startups with sales. And last year with COVID, um, you know, we had the benefit of working with a few um, medical firms, med, med, med tech companies, and we're helping them with sales. And, you know, coming from a more traditional background, we're like, okay, cool, we're going to deploy human elements to this. You know, we're going to get people behind this, we're going to contract it out. And what I quickly realized was that, you know, if we can string together integrated technologies together, a very a team of very few people can do a very, like, you know, like a, a lot of damage, right? It can do, it can perform like a higher, bigger team can. And like, um, and so speaking of tools, like one of the things I discovered was like, uh, you know, we can use something, uh, a CRM called close.io, which allows you to make phone calls, but it's also recorded. And then you tie that with like gong.io, which then takes those recordings and analyzes it and uses AI to like analyze uh, the call recording, see where the win losses and uh, who's repeat going off script, who's not, and, and what's going on there and give you analysis back. And uh, and then you can use uh, automations, uh, you, can, you can use an automation tool that help you know, figure out leads and like where to, where where to get where to get call logs from and get that from. Then you have LinkedIn automation that's growing your uh, growing your presence online and then boom, like you know that's that's running automatically. So suddenly one person is now acting like a team of five or or, or ten, right? And if you can string along the technologies together, you don't necessarily know how they worked, but you just need to know how to like deploy them in the field, right? So suddenly the, I think the the, the technology has allowed a certain shift in the marketplace where smaller teams can act not just nimbly anymore, but can outperform bigger teams, which are slower, right? If you can deploy the technologies in the right way, right? Have you guys found that in your, uh, with what you're doing? I think that's exactly on, along the lines of what we're looking to do. Um, most security operation centers that we're meeting with these days have job openings that they might not be able to fill simply because there aren't enough people for those seats. So if all of a sudden we can turn a, a team of 10 into a you know theoretical team of 15 just by improving their abilities, then that's huge because mm. you know the businesses want to hire, but they're just there aren't enough people in the seats yet. And I know uh, Canada is doing a lot to to sponsor a lot of programs and to create more jobs and um, you know, there's training programs, those are all out there, but until we see the, the results of that, we have the people in the seats, like we really are hoping that we can see an increase because that's great. It's like you were saying, it's a well-oiled machine. It's just flying forward. And if you think about cybersecurity as those front lines that are protecting the country, that's exactly what you would want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to like what, what you said um, about um, AI being used to improve humans, not replace them. 
right? I think that that's, that modality is so important because uh, because I think that's what we've been trained and told. It's like the computers are coming for us, right? The <laughs> machines are taking over, right? But in reality, like for the people who understand and know how to use it, not necessarily know how to code, but know how to use technology better, right? They can outperform those that don't, right? Um, have you experiences yourself like where you have adopted a new technology and you suddenly like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so much more efficient, right? Like, any parallels you see between what you're doing for other people versus your, in your personal life you experienced? In my personal life, I started using um, a tool that aggregates, like and it goes back to like, how do I, you know, like learn more about cybersecurity and, and stay on top of trends. Um, just a tool that aggregates stories for me um, rather than having to surf all the, you know, surf around or cut through the noise of Google alerts. Um, I find that makes me much more efficient. Um, and also, um, you know, Rachel is really humble, but she's like a, a sales team of one that acts like a team of five. So she's, <laughs> she wouldn't say that herself, but that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. The one, <laughs> the one thing I use in my personal life that I don't think I could live without is Keeper, like the password storage. Oh thing. yeah. Which Madeline's point, I am the worst for remembering my passwords. My friends all make fun of me. And you can't use the same password over and over, but then how do you remember all your passwords? It's just yeah. this terrible situation. And then um, I, I was told about this tool that can store your passwords safely. And it has changed my life because I no longer am changing all my passwords all the time if I can't remember them. So that was a game changer for sure. Definitely. Uh, for me, it's uh, with the Google passwords, like the the manage passwords function is, it, is like, it just like built right in, right? Into the Chrome browser, it's, it's pretty useful. But um, I think, like uh, I think what you said is so important. Like changing passwords, like it goes back to what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. um, so tuning back to uh, Penfield AI and uh, like how that um, you know improves humans and, and what they do, right? Um, like have you have you got any field tests, like reports back? Like what what are people seeing saying about it? Like uh, you know you talk about iterative design, right? Like any any kind of yeah. any kind of criticism, any kind of positive reinforcements that have come through. Yeah, well, our, our very first POC was the one where we were able to demonstrate the 38% in time to resolve cybersecurity incidents. And that's huge because um, these breaches grow exponentially with time. So the longer a hacker is in an organization, the more damage they can do. And if you can mm. cut that down, you're de-risking the organization exponentially. So it's, it's definitely not a, a linear attack by any means. So that's um, one bit that is amazing. But also on the auditing front, uh, we do intelligent audits on every single incident resolved. But right now in the industry, there's there's nothing doing that. They're either randomly selecting a handful of incidents each week to audit, or um, after a breach, they'll go back in and see what went wrong. But there's no way to know if the people on the team might be dropping the ball because they have 10 other things in the queue and they're really stressed out. And this is what keeps... CEOs up at night worried, worried that they're going to get breached. So now if you have a tool that can actually conduct an immediate audit on every single incident that comes in to ensure that it's being completed correctly, you can just get ahead of any potential mistakes. Because at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. It's only human. Um, companies expect their people to make mistakes. That's not the problem. Uh, it's just you know mitigating any risk that comes along with it. So that's a, a big thing that I think is really resonating with a lot of the people we're speaking with these days. No, that's, I think that's, that's great. Like, um, that's a great set. Could you talk a little bit more about the auditing fact, uh, factor, right? 
I mean, you'd naturally think that companies would be, you know, doing self audits and things like that. What, what, what's your product offering there? Yeah, I mean, they definitely do. Uh, if you think of a bank, they have billions and billions of cybersecurity incidents each day. And by incident, I mean a potential hack. It might not be a hack. It could just be a false positive or something, but there's potential that that could be a hacker attacking the company. And so they do have uh, people working around the clock to audit and make sure that things are being done correctly. But there's just such a large volume that humans can't keep up. And you can't automate it because it's a dynamic problem, as we address, where the hackers are always changing. So mm -hmm. there just hasn't been a tool that's been able to do it yet. But our founders spent multiple years researching with some of the top minds to come up with this. And, and they spent many years before it was ever turned into a product, ensuring that it actually could do it. So because we can model the actions of the analysts, understand what workflows are correct and not correct, um, as analysts are performing their, their duties, if Penfield detects that something's deviating from that standard norm, it'll flag it and doesn't mean that it's wrong and the analyst has done a bad thing, but it can just put a second set of eyes on it to see if any additional work needs to be done to ensure it's uh, completed correctly. Cool. That, that's fascinating. Can, can you, I guess we'll end off with this uh, one last question. Um, who is an ideal customer for this, for Penfield? Is it an SME? a specialized firm, small businesses, enterprises, or, or like a mix of them, mixed bag? Because we're, we're small right now, we're coming to market, we're targeting uh, MSSPs and MDRs. So that's managed security service providers and managed detection and response service providers. So these are essentially kind of your SOC as a service. They have security operation centers that businesses that don't have their own can go to and kind of outsource it to. Um, so we're targeting those companies as well as financial institutions. So any of the banks across Canada, um, also similar companies across the U.S. So we speak with a lot of VPs of security operations, uh, CEOs, CFOs, chief information security officers, anyone that's really, you know, responsible for the health of the business and the safety of the business. Um, those are our targets. As we scale and we have more salespeople, more engineers to deploy, there's um, massive markets out there that could benefit from this product, but that's our main focus for this year. Fantastic. Uh, do you feel like there's ever, uh, like, you know, you, uh, there's a the need for governments themselves to get uh, more support from the private sector and secure themselves? Absolutely. We've spoken with uh, numerous sections within the Canadian government. Um, we know people in the US as well. There's definitely a need and there's definitely interest. Um, there's interest, there's funding available. And we're getting great feedback from those sectors as well. So uh, it's absolutely a, an important space. I think, you know, the government is so responsible for protecting all of its citizens. And I think they do a great job of it, but they definitely have shown some interest so far. Great. Well, I wish you guys the best. This is definitely, we need more cybersecurity uh, in our personal lives, but also in the institutions we work with. So kudos to you guys. Um, you know, looking forward to seeing you guys grow and move, uh, you know, move uh, move out in the industry. But Madeline, Rachel, thank you for so much for your time and coming on. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for your it's time. Thank you so much.